If you weren't here last week, we just began a, a short series on relationships. We spoke about you know, how to respond to being wronged and, and what is our responsibility as followers of Jesus to, to that. So if you know someone who is uh, busy struggling with a little bit of bitterness and because they've been wronged and they're struggling to get through that or they're responding in the wrong way, you know, point them to that because you can catch up with that on the website and it's, it was recorded. But this week we're moving on from that uh, to another subject, and that is how to do relationships well. You know, uh, it can be said, and we said this last week, that a healthy life is often accompanied by healthy relationships. Um, it's a simple statement that is largely true. In fact, um, there's been research done on it, and some really interesting research. I remember watching a documentary not too long ago, and it said, you know, one of the most common denominators, denom- denominators, yeah, that's the right word, um, in people being healthy into old age was the quality of their relationships. In fact, it was a bigger factor in their health than things like, you know, diet, which is surprising. Now, some people have an unfortunate predisposition towards having a bad diet, you know, heart disease for a certain diet and so on. So that's taking that aside. But people who have good relationships have a better chance of getting to old age and having less trouble when they're there. I find that really, really fascinating. And so today, I want to consider that side of things. You know, relationships with other people are more important and formational than you might be aware of. I mean, just think about this short thing. If you consider both the best moments and the worst moments of your life, what did they have in common? Most likely people. They had something to do with people. Some of us grew up with good relationships and enjoy the healthy spin-offs that come with that. Namely, you may find that you find it quite easy to identify people who would make good acquaintances or identify people who would make good, healthy friendships. And you're pretty good at identifying people who would be pretty unhealthy friends. And you know that, well, with that particular person, you probably need to put some boundaries in place. Some of us grew up with a lot of dysfunction in our lives and have had to or should be learning to not let that dysfunction and baggage define us and define the relationships we're in. And if that's you, you might find that you find it a little bit more difficult to identify healthy friends. You find it a little bit more difficult to spot that person who's probably not going to be very good for you. And you only really discover it when it's, a lot, when it's too late and you've had to face some consequences. And so that's part of growing as a human being is learning to identify our baggage, uh, what it makes us do, and then overcoming that. A lot of people never do that. They actually just live out of a place of their baggage and they continue making the same mistake over and over again, hoping for a different result. Some of our relationships are good and include a lot of trust. Some of them are broken. And some are awkward, like walking on glass or wandering through a minefield. And it's just a matter of time before you step on the wrong spot and hit the wrong button and boom, that relationship blows up for a time. And some of you know about that. Relationships are challenging, and they can go from good to bad 
or bad to good in a very short space of time, um, depending on how the relationship is defined. I remember one of the most difficult things is, is that uh, people find it quite difficult to be friends with people in authority over them, be it at work, uh, even in places like church. People can be friends with a pastor, but sometimes there's some challenges there. So I remember in my old church, before I became a pastor, I was actually just a regular attendee. I served, I did stuff, and so on. And then one day I was asked to come onto staff. I was asked to be the associate assistant pastor. And I was, I was fascinated how that actually affected one or two of my friendships. Not all of them. Most of them were fine. But there was one friend who I just felt like we, we got on really well with, and we had a lot of grace, and you know we could make mistakes with one another, and that was all fine and well. Until one day I made a mistake whilst being a pastor, and it, it near on destroyed the relationship, you know, and they put like a, a formal complaint in with me, and it became a big thing that I had to deal with as part of my job. And it was because there was a button there that I didn't know existed. You know, it's like I was walking through a minefield, but I didn't know it at the time. And, and what happened is I stood on that button. And uh, it blew up. You know, it, it all got sorted out eventually, but it, it taught me a valuable lesson in that for nowadays, whenever I enter into a similar relationship with people who've got those same issues, I don't press those buttons anymore because I learned the hard way before. And we've all probably experienced that in some shape or form. You know, when we get together as the church, the people of God, we're called to be His community. We're called to be a reflection of his health to the world. And in order to do that, we need to learn to do relationships well. Now, you might hear me say that and you think, uh, if only all churches took that quite seriously. Well, you know, churches have one big problem. Can anybody tell me what the one big problem with all churches is? It's not their theology. It's all y'all, right? It's people, right? If we could get rid of the people, church would be awesome, Right? but then there wouldn't be a church no more. So, you know, we have this difficulty that God decides to use people to reveal his goodness to the world. So, you know, he knows what he's doing. Uh, I wish we did, but that's, that's, that's another sermon for another day. And so in order to do healthy relationships, it means we have to accept a couple of realities. One is we need to be willing to be, get awkward. And by getting awkward through going through some unpleasant treatment of ourselves to get healthy. It's kind of like you go to the doctor, right? Uh, you've got something wrong with you, and the doctor turns around and says, well, the good news is you can get better, but the medicine I'm going to give you is going to have some side effects. And the side, side effects are pretty unpleasant, but you've got to go through it. You know, we had a member in our church recently have to go through open-heart surgery in order to improve their health. The problem is, is the whole process of being opened up and being cut up and going through that. It takes a long time. There's a lot of pain involved. But the reward at the other end is worth the pain. That's why people go through it. And it's the same with relationships. If we want to be the type of person that builds healthy relationships with others, sometimes we have to go through that process where we identify the baggage in our own life. We identify our own issues and we identify the places where we're weak and we begin to learn how to get around those things so that we can build healthy relationships with others. And that is never pleasant because none of us wants to look in the mirror 
and honestly ask the question, what is wrong with you? Uh, I know you pretty much all do that probably on a weekly basis. You look at the mirror and go, what is wrong with you? But you quickly answer that question by going, nothing. It's everybody else is an idiot, you know? And why am I surrounded by so many incompetent people? And then you walk away from the mirror. But the true disciple looks at that mirror, asks the question, and involves God in the process. And the problem with God is this, is if you ask him what's wrong with you, he often answers that prayer. So uh, beware, beware. And so today, I want to focus on and talk about improving the one common denomination that we can control in our relationships, and that's ourselves. So let's pray together before I get into reading. Lord, we thank you that you're a God of renewal, that every single human being out there, no matter how broken, when we come to you and we hand ourselves over to you, that you can begin to repair us, you can begin to build us together up, build build us together and, and, and make something whole and healthy out of us again. If it takes a year, five years, ten years, a lifetime, we know that you can do it. And so this morning as we begin to look at things that we can do and a couple of small things that we can adjust in our own lives to begin to point ourselves in, in a place where we can become healthy people. Lord, would you begin to shape us? We begin to reveal to us those things that you're wanting to renew in each one of us. We submit all to you, Lord, today. Lead my words in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, I've got two readings today. They'll make sense as we go through them. Uh, the first is from Matthew chapter 5, and then we'll jump over to Galatians chapter 5, so you can follow along or it'll be on the screen behind me. This first one is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says this to the people he's teaching. He goes, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Heavy stuff. You've heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother, and by implication sister, will be subject to judgment. And anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Wow, that's heavy stuff. Jumping over to Galatians 5, starting at verse 22, it says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And by implications, when Paul's talking about that, he's talking about the selfishness that so lives strongly within us. Since we live by the Spirit, Let us keep in step with the Spirit. And just as I was looking at those passages this week, they kind of revealed a few things to me about relationships. And the first one is this. Good relationships require humility. And this is where the Pharisees come in. The Pharisees did not have a good relationship with Jesus. You just have to read a few chapters in the New Testament to come across that. And so we want to ask the question, Why? What is it that they were doing wrong? Why were they getting on his bad side? Well, the Pharisees were an interesting group of people. They wanted to be holy. They wanted to be pure. You know, we get Christians like that today. They're obsessed 
with being holy by not sinning. That's their definition of holiness, not sinning. Their definition of righteousness is not doing things that are unrighteous. And it's half a definition because holiness and righteousness are actually gifts from God. They're status things that happen. And we've got a whole sermon series a few months ago looking at that. And so the Pharisees were very good at surface stuff, very good at doing the done thing. And what they did is in doing that, they shunned relationships with anyone that they considered below them, anyone who wasn't doing what they were doing. And they basically set up systems of holiness that people could not realistically meet and then judge them for their failure. A lot of the rules and regulations that the Pharisees had made it very difficult for you to be a regular person, right? Like a farmer, you know, because if you were farming or you were a shepherd and one of your animals died, you need to deal with it. You need to touch that animal and go off somewhere. And then the Pharisees had a whole bunch of rules and regulations that made you dirty and you couldn't do anything about that. And so it made it very, very difficult for people to live up to their standards. This is one of the reasons why Jesus was so offended by them. And as well as that, Pharisees were unable to have meaningful relationships with anyone other than other Pharisees. And so they were a very exclusive bunch. And over the years, this produced a kind of self-righteousness, a kind of pride. And so they lacked humility. And humility is foundational for a lot of things. The main being that it is pretty foundational in having a relationship with God, in following Jesus. You kind of have to be a little humble. You have to humble yourself before the Lord. But as well as that, and the thing that we're going to focus on today is that humility is actually really important in building healthy relationships with the people around you. Think about it. How easy is it to get to know someone when you're pretty sure they don't look down on you? When you're pretty sure that when they look at you, they see somebody valuable, somebody that is of equal importance to them. Those type of people are fairly easy to get to know pretty quickly. Jesus modeled this throughout his ministry. Though he was more righteous than anyone else, and he knew it, he never considered it as something to make him better than other people. He treated other people like they were just as important as he was. Even the lowliest child to the oldest old person. Mostly, because, you know, the Pharisees got his wrong side, so he, he did a few things with them. And so this is my first thing. First thing is a simple test to see if you're doing well in being humble in your relationships with other people. Are you treating other people, everybody, in the same way that you'd like them to treat you? You know, from the waitress at the restaurant that you might be eating at today to the person at work who annoys you, you know. Do you treat them the way you want to be treated? If you're doing that, that's a sign that you're probably a fairly humble person. So keep it up. If you treat other people with disdain and you kind of look down on them, then you've got a few struggles to overcome in order to build healthy relationships. Next, second point, anger hampers good relationship. It's probably better to say unchecked anger hampers good relationships. You know, we know this. You know, we see the negative consequences of this all around us in society. You know, our current climate in our society has a lot of anger in it. You know, all you have to do is switch on the TV, watch the news, go on social media. You can 
go somewhere, you can find an angry person really, really quickly. Everybody's angry about almost everything all the time. You know, people seem to, in a sense, enjoy being outraged and angry at the moment. You know, and rather than dealing with that anger in any kind of constructive way, the norm has become to be outraged and have some sort of rant or have some sort of, you know, Twitterati come after you or whatever it is. It just seems to be everybody's willing to be angry and not graceful. And, you know, the powers that be aren't helping the situation. You know, the media incites anger to increase ratings and basically to make money because anger pays the bills. But they are not the only culprits. Average people are getting better at generating anger all the time just by their use of social media from random unknown people all the way up to the folk who frequent the White House. Everybody is getting very good at making everybody else really angry. And trading in rage can get quick results. So you understand why they're doing it. Uh, quick results, especially from the news people and the politicians who need people to switch on their TV screens, to watch their channels, and to get out and go vote for them. And one of the best ways to make people move and do something is to get them upset. Because content people do something. What do content people do? They chill. And when you're chilling on your sofa and you think about who you're going to vote for, you're like, well, I kind of like both candidates. I don't really care this week. I think I'll just stay at home. But when you're really annoyed and angry and irate, you get up and you go do something. And so the short-term benefits to the media, to politicians, and is, is that they get people to move and do stuff. And so anger is the quickest way to do that. And so whenever you're watching TV or you're on social media, wherever it is, it's geared up to get you agitated. The problem is, is it's a short-term solution to anything. Because in the end, unchecked anger always boils over into something destructive and not good. You know, um, Senator John McCain had his funeral this week, and one of the people they had speaking uh, there was um, one, of, one of his friends from the other side of the aisle, one of the Democrats. And the two of them had become good friends over the years. And while he was saying his speech, he said something really interesting. He said, they, whenever they would go to any Senate meeting or any kind of thing that was going on, they would sit next to each other because they were friends. Even though they were very different politically and they would argue about politics all the time, they enjoyed one another's company. So they sat next to each other everywhere. And then one day, after doing this for a long period of time, the Republicans went up to John McCain and said, hey, listen, you, you need to stop sitting next to him because it doesn't look good. And the Democrats went to him and said, hey, you need to stop sitting next to McCain because it doesn't look good. And while he was giving his eulogy, he says, that's when he knew things were going to start getting nasty in politics in America because, because people were getting angrier and angrier. And the anger was starting to break relationships. And it was no longer good enough to have relationships and friendships across the aisle because they're not worthy of friendship. And that's what anger does. Anger breaks relations. If you have unchecked anger happening in your family and you're not dealing with it, and you're not doing reconciliation, all it's going to do is to lead to more brokenness. Okay? If you rage, nobody, the person you're angry with isn't going to turn around and all of a sudden change your mind one day and go, 
oh, wow, you know, your anger, as, as it gets bigger and bigger, I'm realizing that maybe I am wrong and your anger is making me more gentle. It's not going to happen. Right? If you're the angry person, you can deal with your anger and begin to work towards reconciliation. And if you're not, you're dishonoring the Lord. You know, I'm sorry to say that, but you are. And so anger is dangerous. It makes us prisoners. It keeps us from caring about others, and it keeps us from being the free sons and daughters of God that we are called to be. Because we are the people of God. We are the ones, the, the, the kingdom of priests, reconciling the world and the universe back to its creator. And you can't do that if you're giving yourself over to anger all the time. And so when Jesus mentions this word, raka, it's there to convey the inner hostility that we feel, that we carry. Because, you know, we all have a bit of it inside of us. We all have a little bit of rage in a cage right inside there, just waiting to break out. And so we need God to help us deal with that. You know, and it's fed by all sorts of things, this, in, in, this internal anger, this rage. It's fed by insecurity, unresolved hurt, middle-age frustration, you know, whatever it is that you've got. And so the question that you need to ask is this, what makes you angry? What presses your buttons? And then once you've figured that out, you have to ask the question, why does it make you angry? So ask my kids. Actually, don't ask my kids. <laughs> you know, the rage machine that is Billy Kent at home. I get annoyed all the time, right? Maybe it's because I'm in my 40s now, right? So I'm just like getting grumpier the older I get, right? But, you know, one of my weaknesses is that I'm a bit of a minimalist. I really like things neat and tidy, right? I like things just, show, just so. And the problem is when you go and make five children, you, you don't think about this thing, but children aren't minimalists, right? Because they, they, they do stuff and, and they mess your stuff up, right? And they leave things lying around. So David's been staying at our house this weekend. I came down into the basement. They'd all been chilling out watching TV. And the place was like a bomb went off. So I went from, from zero to rage in like two seconds. And I'm like, what's going on down here? And it was like, oh, we're chilling. <laughs> ah! Right? Because it presses my buttons, right? Because I, I, I just realized whenever the place is untidy and I see people just like dropping stuff, like, you know, when... Like, we have this thing in our house. It's time for me to rant. It's not even in the text, but, you know, it's all... So we have this thing. It's like a tub that you can sit on, and you open it, right? And it's about... It's like a cubic foot. Oh, I don't know if it's that big, but it's big, right? It can fit a lot of shoes. And that's why it's there. You come into our house, you open it up, take your shoes off, and you put it in there so we don't dirty the carpets. Our, our carpets are filthy, by the way. I, I need to get new shoes, right? And the reason why is because people don't take their shoes off and put it in the tub. Guests, you're okay. You can keep your shoes on. Right? But our people who live in the house have to take their shoes off. Anyway, so the people who live in my house, who shall go unnamed, come into the door, and they take off their shoes, and they stand next to the tub, and they put them on the floor. And what happens is the tub gets empty, and the floor becomes this mass of shoes, which, you know, if there's just two of you, that's okay. But when there's like 150 of you living in the house, there's like a million shoes on the floor. And I come in, and I just get so annoyed. I get angry. And I'm like, man, why, why, why are you so uptight? You know? And I realize it's because I just, I'm a control freak. right? I like things neat and tidy. 
I like to walk in and the cushions are nicely fluffed. It's like when I, get in, when I come home, I take my shoes off and I walk all the way to my room and I put them in my closet. I don't even put them in the tub, right? None of my shoes are in the tub. None of my shoes are on the floor. It's only the other people who live there. Finger of accusation. Anyway, so not everybody who lives in my house is a minimalist, right? So there's a problem. And the problem's me. I hate to admit it. And so, yeah, I've been trying to work on this over the the past while. Some people who live in my house may disagree with this statement. I'm really trying to learn to chill out a little, right? And become less become less of a minimalist because it's not working. It's not working for me right now. So, And I need to change because I'm going to go insane if I don't. And so each one of you has your thing, right? That you're not willing to stand up in front of everybody and confess. Whatever it is, you have this thing that makes you angry. And you've got to ask yourself the question, why is it? Well, the reason why is because I'm selfish. And I want my house to be neat and tidy. I want everybody else to just buck up and sort it out. And everybody else isn't on the same agenda as I am. And so I've got to have a little grace for other people. Because not everybody around you is going to do things the way you want them to do it. And the sooner you reconcile yourself to it, probably more chilled out you're going to be. And then everybody's just going to be annoyed with you. But that's probably better. Because it's the, it's the person who's angry that's in the cage. The person who's, being, who's causing all the anger is quite free and happy, skipping along a field, doing nothing. You know? Nothing at all. Not picking up any shoes. Right? Anyway, next point. So once you've discovered what makes you angry, you kind of, you need some help. Now, some of it might not be as piffle as mine is. You might have some real issues in your life, causing a lot of real deep-rooted anger, you know, and it might be pretty complex. And you, I need to talk to somebody about it. You know, as well as inviting God into the situation. You know, as followers of Jesus, we need to give ourselves over to the revelation of the Spirit and the help of the Holy Spirit. As we begin to do that, we begin to submit to the presence of God in our lives by His Holy Spirit, something happens. The stuff called fruit is produced, and we read that in Galatians 5 today. And as we begin to submit more of ourselves to the Lord, in other words, letting God take more and more of our selfishness, denying ourselves more for His sake, we get the stuff called fruit that begins to grow in us. And as that stuff grows, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, right? As that stuff grows in you, something happens. You become a better friend. You become a better husband. You become a better wife, son, daughter, whatever it is you are, neighbor. You all of a sudden become better at those things just by result. And as you go in life, you'll notice something else that other people who are growing in those fruits of the Spirit seem to be easy to get on with and easy to build healthy relationships with. And so we begin to learn to give grace to others that we, up until that point, have only given to ourselves. You know, human beings have this thing. I, uh, you know, A few months ago I preached on it and I've forgotten the name of it. I apologize. I should have written it down. But we have this tendency to give ourselves more grace than we give other people for the exact same thing. So a silly example is, um, those of you who are parents, there you are, uh, 
Uh, you're in the store, you've got a toddler, right? Two-year-old toddler, just the joy and the delight of your life. What a beautiful little angel God has given us. And then they reach the tantrum stage. And so there you are in the supermarket, minding your own business, blah, blah, blah. Child spots candy on the lower shelf because that's what the powers of be do, don't they? They don't put it where you can see it. They put it where the little people can see it. Right? A little person spots whatever it is, dipping dods at the bottom of the freezer, opens the freezer, tries to put it into your cart. No, you can't have it. Next thing you know, Kicking, screaming, lying on the floor. There you are, one hand on the cart, dragging a child by the leg. Screaming the whole store down. And everybody's looking at you. And you're like, you just want to die. right? And then you see somebody you know, and they look at you and they say, oh, everything okay? Like, he's tired. He needs a nap. you know. And then you say to yourself, he is tired. He doesn't need that. This kid just needs to buck up and stop with the tantruming because I'm a good parent. And you're embarrassing me in the store, right? That's the way most people deal with that situation. Then one day you've got someone else watching your kid and you get to the store by yourself. And it's like, wow, this is amazing. I never realized going to the store could be so much fun by myself, right? And there you are. And then some other person with a kid the same age as your kid is having a huge tantrum. Oh, their kid's having a huge tantrum. And, the, and you can see this parent is stressing out and trying to deal with a kid, and you look over and you go, man, get a hold of your kid. I'm going to stay to you. My child, I mean, my kid gets upset, but never that bad. You know, like, take your kid home and spank them or something. You know, people judge other people who are in the same situation as them. You know, they give them less grace because for some reason, deep down, we just think we're a little bit better than other people. You know? We don't admit it. And also, we think we're a little bit smarter too. You know? Well, you know, most Christians wouldn't admit that, but unfortunately, they admit it as soon as they go on Twitter or Facebook. They quickly declare to the world that they think they're smarter than everybody else. They just don't realize that everybody else can see that they're saying that, and they don't. Anyway, so we need to give grace to other people like we would give to ourselves. And that only comes through realizing the grace that we've been given. You know... The most difficult thing being a follower of Jesus is learning to be honest with yourself and learning to be honest with how selfish you really are and how God just loves and accepts you anyway. And as you begin to embrace that and begin to realize that and begin to actually accept the grace that God's giving you, that's when it becomes easier to give it to other people. And so those are the four points today. You know, good relationships, we need humility. Uh, we need to learn to deal with our anger. Some anger is righteous and drives us to do good actions. But generally speaking, most anger is selfish. And we need to learn to sort it out. And we need to invite the Spirit of God to come in and change us. Begin to produce the fruit in us so that we become the healthy component that every relationship needs. And then finally, as we grow in that, we begin to be able to give grace to other people. And isn't it just the most amazing thing to have a friend or a parent or a family member, a son or a daughter who just accepts you? Have you got someone like that in your life who just accepts you flawlessly in their own imperfection? You just know if you've got a problem, you can go to that person and they'll turn around and say, wow, you shouldn't have done that, but I love you anyway. And they'll be there for you. 
And then the final question is, are you able to be that person to someone else? And when you can be that person to someone else, you'll begin to build some really healthy relationships. Stand with me as we ask God to grow us in that stuff today. Ah, Scott, you want to come on down? Let's just let's just welcome God's presence and just kind of stand in it for a little while, and you know, just invite God to speak to you. Um, invite the Holy Spirit just to prod your heart and. Reveal some stuff to you that maybe needs to be revealed. Father, thank you that you are present by your Holy Spirit. Lord God, Holy Spirit, would you, would you make your presence known to each one of us right now? Would you come? Lord, we bring the walls of our heart to you. Many of us in this room may have some walls built up in our hearts. There's certain little zones in our lives that we just keep to ourselves. We don't want God to mess with that. There's a relationship that we don't want him to mess with. There's some anger that we don't want him to deal with. There's some bitterness that we're holding on to that we're totally justified in having, but it's causing us to waste away and God wants to break the walls of that that little cell down and he wants to bring his kingdom in there. He wants to bring his reconciliation. He wants to bring his forgiveness. He wants to help you deal with your anger, whatever it is. And now's the time to say yes, Lord. So Lord, you know us. You know these things in our hearts. And I just pray for everybody in this room who's struggling with something struggling to let you in on something. And I just ask that you begin to break those walls down even now. Begin to bring healing to that part of our lives. To make us more whole, to make us better representatives of you here on this earth. Shape and change us and produce more fruit in us. Let your light shine from us better. Lord, come in Jesus' name, Lord.